Our first lesson is one I've actually alluded to in the past couple of weeks where the disciples have an inability to drive out a demon that they otherwise in the past had had an ability to manage. And Jesus gives this statement about how types like this can only come out through prayer. I want you to think in this lesson the relationship between unbelief, pride, demons, humility, and faith. We read from Mark 9, beginning with verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who was possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, and he lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can only be put out by prayer. This is God's word. Our teaching tonight comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. And here the apostle Paul writes the following. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. So stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of truth, the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that wherever I speak, Whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. I would, you know, echo this too. You can pray for me personally so that you can fearlessly have difficult conversations, so that you can fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. 
for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is God's word. This past week in our growth group, we had an interesting discussion as we do every week. So what I've been trying to accomplish throughout this entire series is raise our congregation's general awareness of the spirit realm, the attacks that we face, and especially recognize and be grateful for the authority that Jesus has over the spirit realm. One of the conversations that we had this past week was about Jesus and the Apostle Peter. And there's this famous spot where Jesus uh, says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. He says it right after Peter has just told him, Lord, we don't want you to suffer. You never have, should have to die for us. We'll never leave you. You should never have to go through that pain. And he says, get thee behind me, Satan. One of the things that I brought up at the time, and it seemed to be at least kind of a novel thought within that group, was that it's entirely possible that Satan was actually standing right there next to Peter when Jesus says, get behind me. When he says, get me behind me, Satan, he might also be directly talking to Satan. Now, that shouldn't strike us as particularly weird because when you continue to read in the Gospels and you see that on Monday, Thursday, we're literally told Satan enters into Judas. Very clearly, he's prowling around here throughout the entire process. The reason that you haven't ever thought of this before, this interaction like this, is because you and I live in a society that has a drastically, painfully low awareness of the spirit realm. And what I want you to understand is, you know, on Reformation weekend, uh, Luther and the Orthodox theologians and reformers throughout history have absolutely had a heightened sense of awareness of the spirit realm. In fact, Luther, in his most famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, he says what? In verse 3, though devils all the world should fill. He's not just like writing fancifully there. Though devils all the world should fill, all eager to devour us, we tremble not, we fear no ill, they shall not overpower us. Some people are actually interested to find out that Luther, when he recreated and reformed a baptismal rite, he had an exorcism built into it. At a baptism, he performed an exorcism. So what it says here is that first baptismal formula was, I adjure thee, thou unclean spirit, by the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, that thou come out of and depart from this servant of Jesus Christ, little Johnny, amen. Uh, a Luther scholar by the name of Andrea Grosley uh, writes it like this. She says, in this order of baptism newly revised, Luther removed the symbolic acts of exsufflation, which was just like this breathing ritual, but exsufflation, salt, saliva, and the oil with which the Roman baptismal structure had added to the word of God and the act of baptism, but he kept exorcism. In its rite of exorcism, the church confessed that the child to be baptized was possessed by the devil. Now, the reason that sounds so weird to you and me is because when we hear the word possessed, we think of a little girl with a head spinning around and projectile vomiting. That's not actually demonic possession exactly, right? That's Hollywood. Possession, it means to own something. We come into this world owned by evil forces, owned by sin, owned by the devil. He's confessing that. He's saying this child by nature is a child of sin and wrath, who even after baptism and acceptance as a child of God was faced with a lifelong struggle with the devil. Luther retained the exorcism of the devil with a lawn addressed to him in the baptism. For Luther, this was a word of power uttered in the name of God. Now, to be clear... I want to make it very obvious. The Bible does not command that you perform an exorcism when we do baptisms. It's one of the reasons why, you know, the Bible doesn't command it, so we don't do that. The argument for doing that, for doing an exorcism and baptism, is that one, it clearly identifies that when humans come into this world, we are not neutral. 
we are born under the influence and power of the evil forces of this world. Two, it might, if we did that more often, might reawaken us to a spirit realm that we are very unaware of when we think in terms of scientific empirical uh, evidence all the time. It might like shock us out of that a little bit. Number three, it highlights the radical nature of conversion, that baptisms are not primarily cute family photo ops, but actually something significant is happening in this. And number four, it emphasizes the divine activity in baptism. Theologians call this monergism, which is the idea that God alone is acting. God is doing the heavy lifting in what's going on there. God is making us right with himself. He is driving the spirits away and... We are utterly dependent. We're utterly dependent on him to work always on our behalf. Frankly, if you say, okay, well, that's maybe some arguments to continue to do an exorcism whenever we do baptisms. And frankly, one of the reasons why we don't do it is I'm a little sympathetic to how this might potentially be perceived in the modern world. And so, you know, I don't want to throw obstacles in the way, but we could do it. My point here today is not to argue for or advocate any kind of baptismal practice, though. My point is to show you that spiritually mature people throughout history, including Lutherans, are deeply aware that, one, they are engaged in spiritual warfare. Two, they are dependent on an almighty God. Three, they are aware of strategic demonic deceptions taking place in our lives. We have to have a heightened awareness of that. Uh, one way to think about this is think about, like, 200 years ago, if you think about what's going on in the world right now, there's a war in the Middle East, and, and uh, I don't know if you saw the news earlier this week, Maine had its largest public massacre in state history, uh, at least 18 dead, serial killer on the loose. 200 years ago, if the headlines read, you know, wow, what's going on? Why is there so much evil in the world? We must have a terrible self-esteem epidemic taking place in the United States. 200 years ago, people would have thought, you're nuts. What are you doing questioning why there's evil in the world? Of course there's evil in the world. Of course there's evil in the world. People did not deny that back then. Well, what happened? What has changed that in the centuries in between? Well, it's a couple of different factors that are pretty fascinating. One of them, in 1692, you have this, had this incident called the Salem Witch Trial. And uh, if you read carefully through the history of that, it's one of those things where there's, there's, so far as I can tell, a little smoke there in terms of uh, bizarre, medically indiscernible behaviors going on. But nonetheless, the bigger thing that we learned from the whole Salem witch deal is mass public hysteria. We learn prejudice. We learn the uh, really misguided religious convictions. And what ended up happening out of that between rash community behaviors combined at that time with a rise in the scientific revolution that was at that time promising that we were going to have naturalistic explanations for all of the stuff that we see in the world. Combined, it led to us in a society today being a people who have a very, very, very low awareness compared to others in world history about the actual spirit realm. This completely affected biblical interpretation in the 20th century. There were a lot of Bible scholars. When I say Bible scholars, I'm saying they did this for a living. That's all they did was study the Bible. But they were starting to reinterpret portions of the Bible about demonic possession and say, like, no, the gospel writers... Uh, that was actually epilepsy that you're calling demonic possession. That was actually schizophrenia that you're calling demonic possession. You're, you're just labeling these things in pre-scientific terms. That's, that was the criticism in the 20th century. One, that is so condescending to ancient people, like they just completely didn't know what they were talking about. 
Two, read through the Bible's clear testimony on these things. Read through Job chapter one and tell me that you can honestly read the Bible and say that God, under God's allowance, demons have no ability to physically afflict people. Read through 1 Samuel 16, where King Saul is tormented by a demon that God's allowed and tell me that under God's allowance, demons can't possibly psychologically torment people. Of course they can. You know, furthermore, I would also, this is kind of a personal issue for me too, because I've shared with you guys many times before, my overall personal battles throughout the majority of my life with obsessive compulsive disorder. And I have heard so many professionals over the years use terms like chemical imbalance and faulty wiring. And, um, okay, let me just ask you real quick. Why is it that the OCD victim is constantly trying to scrub away a stain and a contamination that he can't see? And why is the schizophrenic often paranoid about unseen wickedness? And why is the bipolar victim oftentimes jump into, at certain moments, behaviors of spending sprees and risky sexual behaviors? And why is it that someone with Tourette's, when they have outbursts, they sometimes just swear? Why do you think that is? The naturalistic explanation is that you have this part of your brain called the amygdala that regulates emotions of anger and uh, aggression and stuff like that. Uh, But it's just so fascinating to me how much behavior we write off, how much destructive behavior we write off as chemical imbalance and bad wiring. For starters, that's not a scientific statement. There isn't like a probe that you can stick in someone's head and say, oh, their chemicals are imbalanced. Clearly. There isn't, like you can't open it up and see, oh, the wires were just crossed right there. That's not how mental health works. It's not that scientific. It is an abstract statement. Furthermore, let me just do this little mental exercise. Uh, When something else in your life has faulty wiring, like let's say your home or your car, your car, when your car has faulty wiring, does it start behaving inexplicably malevolently? Does it start hurting other people and hurting itself? Your car, does it, uh, does it start all of a sudden start flying around and running into people or going backwards at 100 miles an hour? No, when your car has faulty wiring, it doesn't start behaving malevolently towards others. You know what it starts doing? It shuts down. So if humans truly at the root of it just have faulty wiring, why don't we see more humans shutting down? Why do we see them engaging in behaviors that are destructive towards them and destructive towards others? Now, I want to be very clear about this. Let no one walk out of here tonight and say, yeah, Pastor Hines said that mental health disorders are all demonic possession or something like that. Not what I'm saying. Not at all what I'm saying. In fact, let me show you something here real quick. You know what that is? That's a PET scan of somebody with obsessive compulsive disorder. You can quantitatively prove that in the orbitofrontal cortex and in something called the caudate nucleus, there is, uh, your, your brain of the OCD victim is in hyperdrive all the time. There very clearly is some sort of abnormal brain activity going on. I would also say as somebody who has learned to manage the symptoms of OCD over the year that it comes through by my will directing my brain to think in less negative thinking patterns. And so what I'm suggesting is this, humans are wonderful, frail creatures We all have our own weaknesses and susceptibilities, and Satan is really good at discovering and exploiting those weaknesses in ways that lead us to hurt ourselves 
and hurt others. I'm saying that bad wiring is an ambiguous, simplistic, lazy, and insufficient explanation for destructive human behaviors. And I'm saying what Paul says here, that our struggles in this life are not against flesh and blood. They are against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's the enemy. Paul is suggesting that the evil that we experience and feel and see in the world has a supernatural and transcendent quality about it. Now, was Paul a guy who actually did struggle against flesh and blood? He's writing from prison. He's been beaten. He's been bloodied. He's been whipped. He's been tortured. Did that guy have flesh as an opposition in his life? Yes. He's saying they're not the origin of the evil, though. Those human agents are complicit with the evil, but they are not the origin of the evil itself. They are victim of the deception of dark forces. In other words, let me put this a little bit differently. If you look at the problems in the world, war and injustice and oppression and racism and violence, there are absolutely humans who are complicit with those evil forces, but they are not in and of themselves the origin of the evil. And you know why that's important? Because if you don't demonize actual demons, you know what you're going to do? You're going to demonize people who are less than demons. You are going to call demons people who are not demons and mistreat humanity. So call the actual demons the demons. Call it what it is. There was, there was a time, by the way, 75, 100 years ago, there was a time when certain portions of the modern Western world believed that uh, racism and violence were simply due to a lack of education and due to a lack of cultural appreciation. And then, like, World War II happened. And you had the Final Solution, and you had the Holocaust. And what historians will tell you, the kicker in all of this is it happened in what was considered the most educated, most civilized country on the planet. Don't tell me it was a lack of education. Uh, for that matter, Marxism. Marxism comes along, and the big idea is that, you know, uh, all our problems are primarily and fundamentally social. And if we can just, if we can just deal with the socialists, if you can get the power out of the hands of the greedy capitalists and put it into the hands of the proletariat, the working class, then we'll experience some sort of utopia. Well, what did we find out? The working class was every bit as vicious and oppressive and violent as the capitalists were. The stuff that gets debated on the news is superficial. I don't watch the news for this reason. The stuff on the news is super, the stuff that trends on Twitter is superficial. It's demonizing of non-demons. Now, are there naturalistic causes? Yes. Physiological diagnoses, broken social systems, human ignorance. These are real things, but they do not in and of themselves account for the pervasive and intractable evil that exists in the world. Satan's brilliant trick in all of this is the wrong diagnosis of evil actually leads you to become evil yourself. When you don't identify the devil as the devil, it leads to more evil, more polarization, a demonizing of people groups. The wrong diagnosis of evil leads you to think that the candidate and the other political party must be the prince of darkness or the princess of darkness themselves. They're not. You know who the devil is? The devil's actually the devil. The devil's the devil. So treat him like the demons and recognize humans 
are victims of deception of the Prince of Darkness. Ironically, if you fight on the wrong front, you become an agent of the devil. Brings me to the last point here. When Paul closes out Ephesians, uh, his encouragement to listeners is to put on the full armor of God. And the full armor of God, he lists a bunch of things here. He mentions a belt, a breastplate, shoes, shields, helmet, sword, but he doesn't define any of them. And Paul does this in his teaching sometimes. Paul's a brilliant teacher. He will do things like he'll take this equipment from a Roman military, you know, from a Roman soldier. He will identify the piece of equipment, and then he'll identify a spiritual concept that he connects to it. And he basically says, I need you to unpack that on your own. Okay, so I'm going to give you a chance to do that. It would take us another half hour to do it tonight. So you're going to do it in your growth groups this week. You're going to unpack each of these concepts. What does the belt of truth actually mean? Okay, so we need to dig into that. But for our time remaining tonight, I want to just get to the last one. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This, by the way, all the other five pieces of equipment were defensive. The sword of the spirit is the only one that is both defensive and offensive. And it is used the way that Jesus uses it when he's in the wilderness and he gets tested by Satan, right? So he's tested by Satan. And how does Jesus fight back? Three times in a row, he quotes scripture and the devil goes away. Three times in a row, he quotes Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. That is the sword of the spirit. And then the devil goes away. It leaves him, right? That's how you fight. Uh, but interestingly, the vast majority of this is just defensive. In fact, even the sword that is used here, it's something called a machaira, which isn't like a big uh, sword. It's, it's a dagger. It's a knife. And what that insinuates to us is your spiritual battle is not so much on this massive epic battlefield. It's like hand-to-hand -hand combat. He sneaks up on you. He sneaks up on you, and then you just have a dagger to defend yourself right there. Right? What's also really important about understanding this is why don't we get more offensive weapons? Like, you're going to give us a bunch of armor and a, and a knife, a kitchen knife, which I'm thankful for that, you know, but why won't you give us more? It's a really important distinction. Why doesn't God give us spiritual bazookas and hand grenades? Why doesn't God give us spiritual tanks and F-16s? You know what it means? It's because you don't have to win the war because the war is already won. The war is already over. It is finished. When he's on the cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago, Jesus pours out his blood and he nukes the devil. The war is won. And only when you realize that are you freed to get up and face the daily battles, the daily hand-to-hand -hand combat. When you do that, there's, there's two ways that it looks. Let me show you here real quick. One is using his word. I'm not just saying reading his word or studying his word or even memorizing his word. You have to actively uh, on the offense, use his word the way Jesus does in the wilderness. It's fascinating to me how often I see Christians who are trying to adjust things like immorality and environmental factors without actually using the word of God. And I don't know what that is other than an underestimation and a lack of confidence in the authority of God's word to fight the thing that's actually the evil that exists in the world, which is the evil spiritual forces. Okay? The second thing so not only do you have to use God's word, and here's my last point, praise him for gifted righteousness. This is the big Reformation thought. This is the, you know, Luther self-identified as, as a Christian his entire life. He went to church. He was, he was a monk. He was teaching at the seminary before, by his own 
estimation he actually ever under really, underst- really understood the gospel. It wasn't until he was in his study one day and he was reading through Romans chapter 1, and Romans 1.17 talks about a righteousness that comes by faith. Up until that point in time in Luther's mind, righteousness was something that I had to produce through a lack of my own sins, through the production of my own good works, and I had to make myself right with God. And then maybe if I'm obedient enough, he will love me, accept me, and bless me. That is how all man-made religions work. That's how Luther thought of righteousness. But in verse 17 of Romans 1, he found an alien righteousness, or passive righteousness, a righteousness that theologians say is imputed to him, it's gifted to him, it's credited to his account. His victory over Satan is not about him fighting the devil. It's about Jesus already victorious over Satan. Luther says, when I experienced that, it was like for the first time in my life, the gates to heaven were open and the the angels were ushering me in. He describes it years later in that experience like this. He says, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in the gospel, A righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, the passive righteousness. It's not about what we do as much as it is about what he has done the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Thus that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. This is referred to as Luther's Reformation breakthrough, or sometimes you might have heard the term his tower experience, It's also a lesser known name for it is Luther's cloaca experience. And that is, cloaca is a Latin term for, it used to mean sewer. By Luther's time, it meant outhouse. And why is this Luther's outhouse experience? You know why? Because his study for decades was located at the top of a tower that's several floors underneath this. The foundation of that tower was a latrine. It was an outhouse. It was the place that the monks would regularly go to to relieve themselves throughout the course of the day. And for Luther, this then served as a metaphor. God met him in the outhouse. You know what that means? God is willing to sink that low because he loves us that deep. Eric Metaxas put this in his biography on Luther, about as good as anybody I think I've ever heard put it. He says, This is the earth-shaking insight that gave Luther the solidest of all foundations in Scripture upon which to base what may be well-reckoned the greatest revolution in human history. But by jesting in 1532 that it happened in the most humbling and humiliating of places, upon the toilet, Luther made it a perfect illustration of his theological foundation that God's incarnation was the only way to reach us where we are and as we are. And because of his love for us, he did not shrink from this approach as vile and difficult as it must be. You want to understand the depths of God's love for you? How far was he willing to go to rescue you? He was willing to go all the way through hell and back to get you. He was willing to travel through the muck of the outhouse in order to rescue you and me. That's the depth of his love. By the way, it is the ultimate antithesis to the Holy Roman Empire, which was a papal world of bejeweled splendor. Why? 
because the gospel is found not there in Rome, but as a simple monk was humbling himself before God's word in the attic of an outhouse, discovering that the gate to paradise is in the gospel of a humbled Savior who crawled through that outhouse to get us. Today, today we humble ourselves before God's word and we stare in awe at his love and splendor. And now more humble and more grateful, we are more prepared to fight off demons than ever before. And I'd close like this. I now command any unclean spirits in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost that you come out of and depart from this congregation, be servants of Jesus Christ. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.